Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being here for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have climate change on the agenda for today, and we have two very distinguished climate uh, scientists who will be talking with us uh, about where we stand right now. It, it's, it's a good thing, of course, that climate change has been in the headlines a lot uh, most recently, um, and, and that we're hearing about a lot of activity among people uh, who are uh, committed to doing something uh, about mitigating the problems um, of carbon emissions, rising seas, a rapidly warming globe, among other issues that um, we're dealing with right now. Uh, part of that stepped-up activity is pointing to the UN Conference on Climate Change, which starts at the end of October, and um, where they're setting goals for things like carbon reduction of carbon emissions. We're also hearing a lot about President Biden's efforts to put in place programs and policies that would um, ease uh, global warming. And uh, so we're going to talk about all that with our panel today. First of all, it's Thursday, which means um, Kevin Riley, the editor, the boss of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Hey, Kevin, how are you? Good morning, Bill. It's great to be here, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, yeah, we have some great people to talk about. In fact, I'm going to introduce our two panelists with their most basic uh, uh, job uh, 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 policy titles, um, because they both have so many honors and so many academic credentials, we do spend the whole show doing uh, that. So with that in mind, we're joined by Dr. Kim Cobb, who is a professor in the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech. She's the Georgia Power Chair and Director of the, Georgia, of the Global Change Program at Georgia Tech. And we're awfully glad to have you back on the show, Kim. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And you are joined by Dr. Marshall Shepard, who is, to give the formal title, the Georgia Athletic Association Distinguished Professor of Geography and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Georgia. But um, Dr. Shepard has worked for NASA. He is um, a popular host of a podcast called Weather Geeks. Um, and uh, Marshall, we're glad to have you here. By the way, I looked at Weather Geeks, your most recent episode, and it's something maybe if we get a chance to touch on later in the show, we can. Um, you talked with uh, Dr. Bill Gale, and one of the things he's working on is how automated vehicles and looking at traffic patterns can help mitigate global warming. It was really an interesting podcast, Marshall. Yeah, no, I thank you, first of all, for having me back on the show. And uh, yeah, happy to talk about that. I think technology is going to be one of our saving graces, if you will, with this climate crisis. All right, um, let's get right to it. Let's start with the news uh, that emerged yesterday. Um, Kevin, here's the Associated Press uh, lead to the story about the Biden administration. Seven major offshore wind farms would be developed on the east and west coasts and in the Gulf of Mexico under a plan announced Wednesday by the Biden administration. The projects are part of President Biden's plan to deploy 30 gigawatts of offshore wind energy by 2030, 
which the administration says would generate enough electricity to power more than 10 million homes. And just as a starting point, Kevin, I think what I said is true. Climate change is getting a lot of coverage in the news these days, and that's a good thing. Yeah, at least in the media, we're past that debate, which was so difficult to navigate. I'll just say uh, for for us, Bill, as you know, where, you know, there's this debate about whether it was really happening. We're finally to the point where it's like, yes, it's really happening. And if you want to argue a little bit about exactly what's causing it, have a good time. But now the debate's on uh, what to do about it and how fast we can do things about it. And uh, this is a huge, huge idea that the president is proposing. And of course, it's generating typical skepticism and also, of course, some concerns environmentally and and otherwise that I think uh, will be important. So I'm interested um, in what our what our uh, our scientists joining us think about the real possibilities, how long something like this takes and all of that. Yeah, Dr. Cobb, what about this uh, wind farm plan? Well, I think it's important to note, first of all, that it has, it's only one in, in many different kinds of approaches to transitioning our economy from uh, dirty fossil fuels into cleaner, low-carbon energy sources. So it's not that the administration is, is just putting this forward. They are working on a, a kind of an all-of-the-above approach in thinking about how to uh, move this forward. But I think to Kevin's point, uh, this doesn't happen overnight. Uh, it will happen with a, a huge amount of oversight, probably a lot of court cases as well as we go forward here. So uh, what's clear is that the stakes could not be higher right now, this year, in terms of getting a, uh, a really good start on uh, the, what has to happen this decade. So we have to really bring home uh, large-scale shifts uh, by the end of this decade. And those don't happen unless you get started right now. So I, I applaud the administration and, and their bold vision here. But I think it's important everybody remember that it uh, it doesn't it's it's not going to happen overnight and and it's not a done deal. But we have to get started. And and I would I would add to that. Uh, I, I think the comment about we're finally over the hump in the argument. I, I you know on the climate scientist side we're like thank gosh because we've been talking about this for decades and we're probably behind the curve because of that debate and this idea, well, we've got to cover both sides and this. There's not both sides. There's not both sides of the sun's going to rise tomorrow. It's going to rise. If I jump off the building, there's not another side of gravity existing or not. So we've always talked about climate change being a crisis and we've needed action for some time. So, you know, it, it's inevitable that we're going to transition to a non-fossil fuel based economy. Uh, there are some environmental concerns that I hear out there, and I'm sure those will be addressed. I've heard concerns about, uh, oh, wind farms uh, out on the coast. That's really ugly. Well, has anyone had a beauty contest with oil derricks out on the plains? Those aren't pretty attractive either, but we certainly have them <laughs> as a part of our infrastructure. So I think we've got to get beyond that and sort of start moving out quickly. Dr. Cobb, you mentioned that this is one thing among many things that, that in your view, simply have to happen. But give us a sense of scale. I mean, how uh, how big a... What what part of the big challenge of replacing fossil fuels can wind farms represent? And uh, despite what happened uh, in Texas over uh, the last winter when the politicians were blaming the wind farms for their uh, electricity uh, uh, rolling blackouts and all that. But I mean, how much how much can wind farms uh, help is really my question. Well, you know, it's going to take a lot of different pieces. So, of course, uh, the electricity sector 
you're only talking about, you know, a, a third of the emissions that we're putting up in the sky each year. Of course, we have to think about transportation, and that's where you see the administration pushing aggressively into EV infrastructure and subsidies to allow this transition to hasten along. And of course, in the same AP piece, uh, mentioning the administration's focus on onshore wind, onshore solar as, as a part of this puzzle as well. And so again, it's kind of a no stone left unturned moment. Uh, but I think this this conversation is really about making sure that we are pointed in the right direction because, again, it's going to take a decade by the administration's own admission to actually get these things in the ground. So uh, we need to get these low carbon sources getting to work. Now, there's always going to be a, a conversation about cost, and I want to drop some numbers in here just released by the National Atmospheric uh, and Oceanic Administration talking about what is going on with the economy. Just this year, estimated damages from weather and climate disasters uh, topping $100 billion. <laughs> it's not even the most expensive year in our nation's history by far. That would be 2017, $400 billion hit to our economy. And uh, Hurricane Ida, $60 billion of the damages this year alone. So when we talk about costs, whether it's environmental, human costs, or infrastructure, we have to keep in mind what's on the other side of the ledger in terms of the escalating costs of climate damages. So, Dr. Shepard, let me follow up on that if I could. Um, we talk about weather disasters, as, as uh, Dr. Cobb just did, and the enormous cost in money, but also, of course, in, in loss of lives and loss of property and that sort of thing, um, how people's lives are ruined by these weather disasters. How easy is it to make the point that um, extreme weather has been caused by climate change for the ordinary person out there. It strikes me that that's a connection that's crucial to make if the people of the country are going to get behind efforts to mitigate these problems. It's a great question. And I served on a National Academy's uh, study uh, four years ago that wrote the report, I wanted, really the definitive port report on what we call attribution, this idea that we can now link contemporary extreme weather events to climate change. Uh, we, we have uh, pretty high confidence in our ability to uh, see the DNA of climate change in, in change in today's heat waves, in today's extreme rainstorms in terms of intensity, the intensity of hurricanes, uh, even some aspects of, of, of wildfires and flooding. And so the science is there. It's, I think we're sort of in a different phase. 30 years ago, people were debating whether climate change was happening or not in causation. We've moved beyond that. The science is here now that we know that uh, extreme weather events are, uh, have the DNA of climate change. So hopefully it won't take another 30 years for people to be convinced. And I think people see it. I think they see it in their own lives. I will remind anyone that's out there tempted to say, well, Dr. Shepard and Dr. Cobb, the climate changes naturally. We've always had hurricanes. Of course we have. But I will remind you that grass grows naturally also, but when we fertilize the soil, it grows differently. So it's not an either-or proposition. It's and. There's naturally varying climate system and now a human steroid on top of it, and we've got to act quickly. So, Dr. Shepard, I've been uh, uh, making my way through a, a recently published book called A Furious Sky, which is a, the history of hurricanes in America. And I, I think that book shows um, that, in fact, they are. They seem to be getting worse, despite our much improved ability to forecast and predict uh, and prepare, really, the choice of whether we want to prepare or not. 
Now, this thing always comes up, and I'm going to ask this question just for the benefit of of people who might be skeptical or listeners. But it also leads we call it global warming, but it also leads to severe cold weather too that that gets worse. So, just as a someone who doesn't know much about the climate science, explain to me how that happens because I just think I've heard that absurd argument, and I know it, it needs to be addressed. Oh, sure. Well, the, the National Academy report that we I mentioned earlier shows that extreme cold events are declining relative to extreme heat events. The, the literature shows us that. The science shows us that. However, uh, many people that are listening to this probably are familiar with the polar vortex. That's become a buzzword in recent last uh, five to ten years, even though it's been around in our science for, for decades. The recent event in Texas that caused the infrastructure damage, there is scientific literature and this is going to, I mean, I, I want everyone to get there, take a swig of coffee now if you're listening so you can kind of go with me here. <laughs> because one of the things we know is we've had the polar vortex, this, this sort of fence of air up in the polar regions that keeps that cold air sort of locked in the polar regions up in the Arctic. But when it weakens, when it weakens, the gate can break loose and all of that cold air can spill down into the U.S. or into Europe. Well, there's scientific evidence that when we have climate warming, that's going to lead to to more of these weakening events where we have a weakening polar vortex circulation and that cold air can ooze down. So that's a very counterintuitive relationship. And I promise you, because every time it gets cold on Twitter, I have someone tweeting me, hey, Dr. Shepard, it's cold. What happened to global warming? I said, it's January in Boston. It's supposed to be cold. But the thing that we know is that weather is your mood and climate is your personality. Uh, a day's weather doesn't define climate. And so that's the message I try to convey. But the bottom line answer to your question is our atmosphere is a non-linear system. It doesn't sort of go from A to B to C. So a globally warm climate system can influence something like the cold polar vortex. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just uh, layer up there and talk about what the IPCC put forward in their recent findings, uh, really providing the strongest links to date between rising greenhouse gases, what we know is global scale warming, and any number of climate and weather extremes. Uh, these would now include extreme precipitation, marine heat waves, heat waves over land, which are things that we've known about before, but some of the newer information uh, with links to drought, with links to fire prone weather, uh, which are those hot, dry uh, conditions, uh, windy conditions that we see out in California fanning flames so often now. And of course, uh, what is immensely relevant to us here in the Southeast, uh, those tropical cyclones and hurricanes. Uh, this report noting that the recent trend indicating a larger proportion of major events uh, relative to total uh, storms has been increasing and is very unlikely related to natural variability, uh, indicating for the first time in this assessment, uh, this link that with increased warming that we expect to happen over the next two decades, uh, we will see all of those impacts worsen. And so that's really making, keeping in clear focus what's at stake when we talk about transitioning our uh, energy infrastructure this decade. Uh, of course, those low warming rates uh, targeting 1.5 degrees Celsius by mid-century um, really at stake here in the conference that's going on in Scotland over the UN climate negotiations, uh, hoping we can turn this around by mid-century. So, um, Dr. Cobb, I'm glad you brought up IPCC. Let's mention first, though, uh, it, it, your report. If it, that IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You were a co-author 
of the report that landed in August. And um, talk about leading to headlines. It was a major story across the United States, and I imagine in other countries in the Western, in, in the world, basically, uh, because one of the things that the working group that you were part of established, and you've talked about consequences, is that warming is happening. The acceleration of climate change is much more rapid than people had thought, and that the urgency to do something is absolutely uh, a much more dramatic rate now than ever before. And, and you talk about the fact, really, in that report that you helped write, we're reaching a point of no return. Well, you know, as I like to say, that this is not a pass-fail course. So, <laughs> you know, maybe we're fighting for, for a B-plus here. I'll, I'll take that, right? Maybe we can eke out an A-minus if we work really hard. Um, so, you know, there, there's never going to be a point of no return. There always will be tangible benefits. Uh, from reducing emissions going forward. So let, let's make that really clear, and that's outlined in this report. And I also don't want to oversell my role as a, as a co-author of this report. I mean, there are 156 authors from around the world working for three years, ingesting thousands and thousands of, of literature, as well as uh, thousands of comments from reviewers that was an open and transparent process. So, of course, that report concluding that uh, human influence on climate is, quote, unequivocal. So closing the chapter thoroughly on, on that debate and moving to what's at stake right now. Uh, Paris, of course, outlining a 1.5 degree C uh, ambitious target for peak warming this century. Um, this report, most importantly, uh, reminding us that this has not yet slipped through our fingers. But if we do not act this year, <laughs> it will, right? We're talking about changes in infrastructure that take decades to put in place and transition. And that's why every year matters right now, reducing those impacts for coming generations over centuries, as well as reaping those benefits by mid-century. Okay, so Dr. Shepard, Dr. Cobb is a little less dramatic and points out that any change is beneficial. I get that. But what she just closed with in talking about is important as well. A 1.5 to 2 degree Celsius warming uh, can be a dangerous thing for the globe, and we've got to start addressing it right now. What is the consequence of, again, the way the public sees this, they think one, per, one, one degree, that's nothing. Two degrees, what does that matter? What's the difference between 88 degrees and 90 degrees on a, on a summer day? Why is that so significant, Dr. Shepard? Well, well, the one thing I will say is uh, we talk about it in terms of 1.5 degrees Celsius, but that's actually much larger than Fahrenheit. And so yeah, that's actually right. several Thank degrees you. more over here. And so... Uh, I put it this way. I think people have gotten used to going into places and having their temperatures taken in this COVID pandemic era. Um, imagine if our bodies uh, ran a temperature or a fever of, of three to four degrees above normal. Our body systems would feel that. They would start to react, in some cases perhaps shut down or misbehave or misfunction. Well, our Earth system is running a fever, and it's the, the, what the implications of that and the reason Paris is so important is that the changes that we're seeing now in terms of our weather and the billions of dollars in damage and so forth, this is the tip of the iceberg, literally, pun intended. We see sort of, in some cases, exponential increases. So for the changes that we're – and it's not just kind of creep along sort of in a linear or sort of a steady pace. We're going to see a dramatic ramp-up because of there are these things that we know in science, these 
feedbacks, these things that sort of amplify each other and so forth. And so this is why I think you hear an urgency in my voice and in uh, Kim's voice. Um, this is not about agendas. It's not about any grant money. I mean, I, I, you know, our grants are pale in comparison to the ec- economic stake here of others. So <laughs> this is just about the fact that the, both Professor Cobb and I have young kids. Um, if we're right about what we're saying, both of our kids are losers. So there's no interest in either of us being correct about this, but that's just what the science and the earth are telling us. Dr. Cobb, you were, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, and ha- both you and Dr. Shepard are careful about not sounding extreme in your urgency. I'll just put it that way. It's a measured sense of urgency. And I guess I'm, I'm curious of how it feels for you, uh, Dr. Cobb first and Dr. Shepard, to kind of um, live in a, in, a, in a space where you can, you know, you and your 150 other authors, which I congratulate you on. I sometimes am only working with two reporters and find that really hard to do. But, um, uh, but, but you're living in this world where you can both see and predict pretty well what's likely to happen and that and, and your past um, – information and predictions or a sense of what's going to happen has probably been confirmed. And we've sort of seen this during the pandemic where epidemiologists could say, well, here's what's going to happen. And it would happen. And then everyone would say, this is terrible. And, and then he would say, well, here's what's going to happen next. And we wouldn't believe that. I mean, what's it like to get these points across and how do you pick between not seeming too, too alarmist, but getting your message across? Dr. Cobb. Well, I think, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. I mean, it, it's very frustrating, right? Because uh, the knowledge that we have squandered decades of action that we could have been taking to reduce these impacts that are upon us right now, let alone those that are coming forward. Uh, but but it's also bringing into clear relief what we need to do in terms of helping communities uh, equip themselves to weather these storms, uh, literally and figuratively, that are coming down the pike. Uh, but yes, it's certainly uh, very, very disturbing to see these headlines reeling out in real time, the kind of headlines that, you know, we thought we may be seeing uh, 10 years ago and, and crystal balls that climate scientists have uh, all becoming clear. There, there's no joy in that. Uh, but it's also very important that uh, we're witnessing a, a sea change in the climate science community of voices that are, are coming to the fore uh, that they haven't been there before, right? There's been kind of an ivory tower. We do our work and we throw the knowledge over the wall and then we hope for the best. Uh, we're really seeing, especially pushed by the younger generation and, and icons like uh, Marshall Shepard here, uh, people recognizing the importance of bringing their scientific voices into these spaces where decisions are being made um, into the public sphere and discussions like we're having today uh, to try to bring it home for folks. So that's really what keeps us going as scientists is, you know, thankfully you're hosting this conversation. I'm grateful for that opportunity and for folks like Marshall, who've been uh, such a steady uh, drumbeat for science in the public sphere. So I wish that had happened 10 years ago, but here we are, and more and more of us are lending our voice, especially the next generation demanding it. And, and, and I would say, you know, our, our tendency is, as scientists is to be measured and, and objective. Well, scientists literally don't try to be hyperbolic about these things. It's not how we're trained. We're trained to follow the data and, and, and uncertainties and so forth. 
Uh, I think that has actually harmed us to some degree. I think our sort of measured ability uh, when we know that sea level rise, Arctic change, and intensity of hurricanes is actually in some cases happening at paces even uh, at a rate greater than what we even anticipated, and we probably haven't sounded the alarm as much as we could have. But, you know, we had the Georgia Climate Conference earlier this summer down in Jekyll Island, and I was encouraged um, because there were voices at the table that weren't ivory tower. There were stakeholders. There were local and state governments. Uh, there were Fortune 500 companies, uh, faith-based organizations, um, uh, environmental justice um, leaders, and so forth. So as Kim noted, the conversation is broadened because people, frankly, understand this isn't about polar bears or graphs and trend lines and publications. It's about their kitchen table issues that I talk about repeatedly. It's about the cost of their Cheerios and their budgets and their fuel prices when there's a hurricane and gas prices spike in the in the days afterwards. And it's about their kids being exposed to uh, a, a, a vector-borne disease that probably lived in Costa Rica 30 years ago that can now thrive here in our latitude. So I think people just are seeing with their own eyes uh, what's happening and, uh, it, you know, because they don't read our papers and go to our conferences, but they, you know, the folks that I know up in Canton, Georgia, where I grew up, uh, they can just, they're, they're pretty smart, common sense people and they see what's going on around them. All right. Um, Thank you for a really great beginning to our conversation. We still have a lot more uh, that I want to talk about with you all, and uh, we'll do that. But let's get to our first break of the show right now and be back with more in a moment. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Today we're talking to two distinguished experts on climate change, uh, Dr. Marshall Shepard, who uh, is in the uh, uh, is a distinguished professor of geography and atmospheric sciences at the University of Georgia, and Dr. Kim Cobb, who uh, is in the school teaches in the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech. They have both gotten so many honors and are involved in so many academic studies and pursuits about science, uh, climate change, the science of climate change. We don't even have time to describe them all. And Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal Constitution is here with me as well. Kevin, I know we. this is not the show to talk about the partisan issues that surround climate change. That's, that's really not what we want to do today. We, we talk about it with our political panels on other occasions. But I do think it's important that with the UN Conference on Climate Change coming up, I think starting on October 31st, I was interested in, Kevin, Kevin in the fact that Pope Francis, the Vatican has announced that Pope Francis intends to uh, attend and that this past weekend, ahead of the conference, he actually uh, gave remarks in which he urged politicians to take the partisanship out of climate change. He, he said that um, basically this is a problem that we all have to face and that we can't afford right now for uh, politics to get in the way. He said this, to meet this challenge, everyone has a role to play. That of political and government leaders is especially important and indeed crucial. This demanding change of direction will require great wisdom, foresight, and concern for the common good. In a word, the fundamental virtues of good politics. Kevin, I guess it's not surprising that the Pope, who oversees um, Catholics around the world, many of whom are struggling in poverty, and therefore they pay a particular price 
when uh, when uh, issues around climate change affect food sources, um, their ability to uh, to work, um, it, diseases that they deal with. Uh, but it's it, the cardinal, the pope has been out front on this issue for a while. Yes, and I and I think Bill, uh, you know, both of our panelists, both Dr. Cobb and Dr. Shepard, have mentioned how. The, the serious uh, impacts of climate change are showing up in real people's real lives, and it's not theoretical science or anything like that anymore. And I think it may, tr- it may become a situation where people like the Pope, faith leaders, and people who are not politicians will have to take a much more leading role because let's face reality. In our country, we've got politicians worrying about being reelected every two years. And so how interested are they in a long-term uh, challenge and long-term policy? And then uh, the other thing about this, and I think we'll get into this further in the conversation, is when you look at the uh, different recommendations and goals in the, uh, in the uh, reports that we've been talking about, we're talking about trillions of dollars of investment. And um, right now, our country is having a bad time uh, figuring out what to invest in, and it's broken down along partisan lines. So I think going forward, uh, that may be the only way the the world can solve such a problem, getting beyond politics. I, I think it is interesting, in, in light of what you're saying, Kevin, to point out that one of the real faith leaders uh, in uh, Metro Atlanta, uh, Dr. Reverend Dr. Gerald Durley, who was the uh, pastor of one of the largest uh, uh, churches in uh, Metro Atlanta is now very involved in climate change. Has made it one of his main missions in life with an organization called Climate One. So that is interesting, uh, Dr. Shepard uh, and Dr. Cobb, to think about the voices from other parts of the community that can engage in how we deal with climate change. Dr. Shepard, you know, my good friend Dr. Durley calls it a civil rights issue. And he's right. Yep. I mean, I, I think he's talked about this. I, I, I participated and wrote, I believe, of the Archdiocese of Atlanta a few years ago. Several uh, faculty members from here at UGA helped write a climate action plan for the Archdiocese of uh, here in, in the Atlanta area. So um, one of the things that my good friend and colleague, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, often talks about is who's, she's, a, she's a scientist of faith, a Christian, and she often talks about connecting value systems. And I, I try to use that approach. You know, I, I gave a talk to the Troop County Chamber of Commerce in LaGrange at, at the invitation of uh, my good colleague and friend John Lanier and the Racy Anderson Foundation a few weeks ago. Now, the Chamber of Commerce in LaGrange Troop County is not necessarily someone that you would think wanted to hear about climate change. But I connected with a value system that worked for a group of business leaders in the same way that if I walk into a church or faith-based community, I talk about things that connect with their value system, such as the scripture talking about stewardship of the earth. And no matter what faith you align with, there's probably something in your writings about stewardship of earth. So it's important, and this kind of gets into the messaging uh, of climate change, because uh, we can't go in blazing with our, our, our graphs and charts and jargon. Um, 
you got to, as a, a pastor of mine in the church I used to attend, used to say, um, you got to make it plain. You got to make it plain for people. And so that's one of the things that I increasingly see. And, and Kim's being very kind. <laughs> Kim's Kim's one of the best at this. And so uh, she she does a, an outstanding job uh, also. And I, I think we just need an era of academics and scholars that move beyond this sort of notion that, oh, academics that go broadly into public engagement are somehow lesser scientists. Uh, I, I would challenge you to look at either my record or uh, Professor Cobbs, and you'll see that we're serious scientists who publish and do those things that we need to do, but we engage more broadly, and we have to. Yeah, Dr. Cobb, I think uh, what Dr. Shepard said is important, and I think I'm right, that you you really believe it's part of your work and your mission to be out in the community um, doing things like this program to make sure that uh, people get the message uh, about the scientific uh, work that's going on, but how it affects and impacts our lives every day. This is a big part of what you do, yes? Absolutely. So I'm going to m- mention a couple things in that note, and, and one is to put on my hat as a co-director of the Georgia Climate Project. Uh, when we talk about uh, reaching across the state and helping folks understand what's at stake in terms of uh, every community uh, facing a set of, of climate impacts going forward that will, will challenge us and challenge our economy, uh, as well as understanding what's at stake when uh, we sit out of the transition to a lower carbon energy infrastructure and all of the benefits that we leave on the table. So uh, that, that's a nonpartisan discussion. It's a, it's a nonpartisan group that's trying to have these conversations uh, across the aisle, so to speak, but also uh, across different stakeholders and communities across the state. So I wanna, I wanna make sure to point folks to that. And then also on the cost issue that was raised before, you know, there's a estimates of hundreds of billions of dollars of damages to our economy each year from exposure to air pollution in this country. And so, you know, we have to think about what's truly at stake here in continued dependence on uh, dirty fossil fuels and who is bearing those damages. Uh, those are by and large the same folks that are going to bear the damages of climate change going forward. Low income communities, urban and rural, as well as communities of color predominantly at those front lines, so-called frontline communities. Those are the same communities that are bearing the cost of uh, air pollution and, and dirty water from our continued dependence on fossil fuels. So it, it's really important to make sure that we have the sound economy uh, going here and we can actually talk about market-based mechanisms for hastening this transition and letting the market go to work, something that many Republicans are in favor of, of course. And when we do so, we have to make sure that we are, again, protecting those frontline communities uh, going forward. We have... Uh... Uh, Dr. Cobb, mostly, I think, uh, default into a conversation about climate change in in the United States as Americans thinking about what we can and should do in this country. But often, and and we saw that a lot, I think, in the last presidential administration, those concerns can be dismissed because people like to say, some people like to say things like, well, it's going to hurt our economy. It's going to put us behind. Meanwhile, the biggest, you know, user of coal is China, and these other uh, nations are contributing to the problem, but will not make the kind of changes that, you know, people want to make here. I mean, what do you, as as a person who's thinking about this in, in big ways, and in fact, both of you think about it in big ways, is that a fair assessment? I mean, what really is the mindset around the world? 
Well, I mean, around the world, they're already enacting these kinds of changes that we've been dithering on in this country <laughs> for decades. So, you know, many countries are already well on their way and they are paving the path, showing us that these kinds of policies uh, are not going to trash our economy. Uh, there's, they're not a doomsday, doomsday scenario out there. In fact, we have some of those examples uh, here at home in the form of the northeastern states that have enacted a price on carbon and have reaped those benefits over the last decade of success, as well as, of course, the California uh, program for a price on carbon. So we are behind the times here in terms of uh, really en enacting uh, the kinds of uh, science-based policies that uh, many other regions of the world have been, have been going down that path for a decade. So again, you know, we have an opportunity, historic, frankly, opportunity this year this fall uh, to really uh, hasten us along at the international table and step up as a country into a role of leadership, which is really what we need to do, right? That that's, should be our charge as America is, is to lead here. And we have all the pieces aligned. And, and of course, the question is, uh, will, will Biden go there with some uh, some momentum or will he go there uh, more empty handed? So, again, uh, lots at stake here uh, in Congress and uh, over in Scotland at the United Nations level. I want to talk about the U.N. conference coming up in a, in a couple of minutes. But but before we do, Dr. Shepard, I'd like to bring this home to Georgia uh, uh, for a few minutes. Um, there is not a section of this state uh, from the coast where we see rising seas to, I assume, rural Georgia, where farmers are being hurt by extreme weather, hurricanes on one hand, heat that is destroying some of the crops that they're growing, uh, to urban Atlanta, where temperatures rise uh, in, in the city, where there's pavement and tall buildings. There is not a section of this state that is not impacted by climate change. Am I right? Yeah, you know, we, we've done the study on it, Bill. We, my, a student of mine, uh, Dr. Benita Casey, in 2015 published a study looking at climate vulnerability at every, at every county in the state of Georgia. And exactly what you just said, our, our vulnerability index uh, lit up in counties and urban spaces because of the who lives in those counties and their exposure to the extreme heat and uh, or urban floods. Uh, the coastal communities lit up for a different reason because of urban flood, a coastal flooding and inundation. Um, the, the the agricultural counties of the south southern part of our state lit up because of their exposure and vulnerability to intense and frequent drought. And so it underscores this idea. I, I recall people calling me after Hurricane Michael uh, when we saw our southwestern state, our great uh, farmers mm -hmm. of the southwest part of the state, just ravaged by Hurricane Michael in terms of the peanut, pecan, cotton, and poultry. I mean, it, I mean these are the types of things that convince people more so than my paper in a peer-reviewed journal. And so yeah. uh, the state of Georgia stepped up. I think we actually quite as kept our leaders in this space in climate change with the Georgia Climate Project, Draw Down Georgia, and various other things. And I, I look forward to even more, uh, because I'll say this quickly, I testified before the House Science Committee on Capitol Hill two years ago, and I did not find the questions from either of the side of the aisles unreasonable. I think there's a new uh, sort of mode of thinking and narrative out there, and we've, we've got to capitalize for good. Um, thank you for ending this segment on a positive note, Dr. Shepard. We do have to take our final break of the show, but we have a lot more time to talk with Dr. Kim Cobb and Dr. Marshall Shepard and Kevin Riley after these messages.
Welcome back to our show as we talk about climate change uh, today. Uh, Dr. Cobb and Dr. Shepard, uh, starting with you, Dr. Cobb, please. Uh, I, I do want to uh, talk a little bit about the UN Climate Change Conference, which is certainly going to attract an enormous amount of attention when it begins. It already has begun to uh, get attention when it uh, begins at the end of October. Uh, and, and they've set up uh, four goals. Uh, but what I'm interested in is, uh, we, we can talk about the goals, but Dr. Cobb, I'm interested in what they say countries are going to have to do to reach those goals. They say that uh, countries are going to, one, need to accelerate the phase out of coal, two, curtail deforestation, three, speed up the switch to electric vehicles, and four, encourage investment in renewables. Um, those in and of themselves are, are goals, uh, Dr. Cobb, that lead to the larger goal of reducing carbon emissions, among other things. Yeah. So, I mean, those are all strategies on the pathway to uh, a net zero world. And so there's a lot of talk about, you know, net zero. And just to help readers understand uh, the 1.5 degrees Celsius most ambitious target that we're aiming for and is almost out of our reach um, is one that's associated with net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. So we have to keep that goal firmly in mind. Now, it's not that we can wait till 2040 and you know, make that happen overnight. <laughs> we actually need to start that ramp right now, this decade, and chart a smooth path to that uh, important benchmark by 2050 in order to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So I'll expect that, you know, what, what we hope is that, of course, they'll chart that pathway forward. Right now, we are not on a track globally to meet that goal with current emissions pledges. Uh, of course, I hope to see those uh, increase in ambition to be in line with that pathway. And most importantly, have some interim benchmarks that are going to help uh, nations understand how they are progressing on this path. Because, again, Early action is the best action here. Keeping the carbon out of the sky now prevents heating piling up later. So again, I hope that the, uh, the agreement also contains language that will look at where we are 2030, where we are 2035, uh, and help countries uh, chart that flight path. Yeah, I, I would add to that. I, you know, it, it's interesting, and it's a, I, I've seen interesting parallels between the entire COVID pandemic, uh, and I, I wrote something on this in Forbes uh, last year. Um, you know, early in the pandemic days, and there there was debate and discussion about whether we should be wearing masks or whether we should be curtailing activity. And I, you know, I, people on a higher pay grade than me sort of ultimately ended up making those decisions. But I think one of the things that we saw is that when there were actions finally taken, we we started to see some tamp back in some aspects of the spread of the virus and so forth, and certainly uh, the, with the vaccine coming on board. I think really the, the, the climate change discussion and the conference in Europe right now and even previous activities such as the Paris Agreement, it's really the same sort of analog. I mean, we, we, we know what needs to be done here. 
I mean, this is, I used yeah. to work at NASA for 12 years. I was a scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, but this is not rocket science. We know what needs to be done. <laughs> we know that what needs to be done. But the, the politics of this is political rewound. The politics of all of this comes into not the science. But for a while, that, that was the strategy to try to attack the science. But we know uh, that that's been done in things like the smoking industry debate and so forth. Uh, uh, we've moved beyond that. The real politics come from the solution space. And so that's why I think, you know, the efforts like Drawdown Georgia and the economic benefit of moving to those wind farms, we, we've got to really make this point, Bill. People say we're going to kill jobs by going to a, 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 fossil, a non-fossil fuel-based economy. Uh, there's actually growth and uh, a renewable energy economy. Uh, people have to make those wind uh, turbines and transport them and maintain them. And same with solar farms and wind and tidal energy. Uh, will there need to be perhaps some retraining and re, um, refocusing of economic assets and opportunities in places dependent upon fossil fuel? Uh, absolutely. But I, I think that this narrative that um, uh, not a renewable energy economy is a job killer is just one that's not supported by the data and literature that I see. You know, one of the goals of the uh, climate change conference is to adapt to protect communities and natural habitats. And that includes build defenses, warning systems, and resilient infrastructure. So I have a question, Dr. Shepard, for you on that one. And you've talked about you know, your work in Georgia, as, as both of you have. I mean, there's all kinds of talk about about a building, like like, you know, like in Charleston, South Carolina, the Army Corps is involved in the possibility of building a billion-dollar seawall to to protect the city. And there's been this conversation about a, a, a similar seawall through, right through downtown Miami being necessary. It sounds a little bit like a surrender. So what will be the balancing act to acknowledging, hey, there are some things that's are going to happen now and we got to prepare and then there are things we ought to be trying to prevent i mean do you, do you think that's going to happen in georgia we're going to need a seawall somewhere along the coast well, I think we are going to use a, need a portfolio of mitigation strategies that's reducing carbon emissions and adaptation strategies because we are living climate change. We are living the impacts now. It's not one of these things we have to talk about in future tense. And so I am all for sort of a, a portfolio of uh, mitigative strategies involving things that are reducing emissions, but also adaptation strategies. I'm, I, I'll quickly share that I'm, you know, I've been involved and Kim, Kim's somewhat involved in this project as well, and she has her own project related to heat in Atlanta as well, but I, I've been involved with a group of engineers at Georgia Tech, and uh, we have been thinking about ways that we can fundamentally redesign and re-engineer cities for thermal justice. In other words, we know that there's excess heat in cities because of the heat island, which Kim and her group at Georgia Tech and Spelman and others are, are studying right now at a very high level of detail. Uh, that's really sort of an adaptation strategy, the fact that we know that climate change is happening, that heat waves are intensifying, and there's an urban heat island. So there's a triple whammy in cities. And so uh, we have some, we have proposed recently to the National Science Foundation a very large, ambitious effort to fundamentally re-engineer cities. And so uh, you know, this is an idea that came from not me as a climate scientist, but Dr. Yogendra Joshi, a mechanical engineering professor at Georgia Tech. And so, yeah, I, I don't see it as surrender as much as sort of reality. 
you know, uh, you know, I, I, sometimes I have to get my oil changed because it gets low in my car. Well, I maybe don't anymore because I just bought an electric vehicle. I think there's oil in it. I'm not even sure. But um, the reality is I have to sort of maintain uh, that. And we've got to maintain where we are because we are have entered a new climate regime. Yeah, I'll just uh, layer up on that. And you know, Marshall notes that engineers and scientists and social scientists are coming together to help communities uh, be more resilient and climate ready, use the best available information that we already have. And thankfully we have that and put it into practice. And that's where we are right now. Marshall mentions the project on urban heat uh, mitigation in Atlanta. I'd like to talk about the coast for a second, uh, the projections from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, sea level rise anywhere from one to five feet by the end of this century, uh, and unthinkable numbers for coastal communities. And that's not including extreme rainfall that will challenge communities. And that's not including the occasional storm surge from these intensifying tropical storms. So really this compound threat unfolding on the coastline. And I'm happy to lift up a project called Smart Sea, Smart sea Level Sensors down on the coast that's a similar kind of partnership to what Marshall is talking about. Institutions like UGA, Savannah State, University of South Carolina, working with City of Savannah and Mayor Van Johnson, as well as the Channel Emergency Management Agency to think about the short-term solutions and providing them with real-time information from these low-cost sea-level sensors, as well as providing a, a sound foundation for planning for resilient Savannah and a resilient Chatham County, and frankly, all up and down the Georgia coast for decades to come. But I want to make a, a good point here that Marshall started to make, which is there's a lot of science to be had when we try to think about translating the IPCC findings down onto the ground. And it's going to take uh, people coming together in new kinds of partnerships to help communities move forward. And I'm proud of Georgia Tech for being part of that. And I think, our, of course, UGA and so many other institutions across the state at the table for this conversation. Um, we're starting to get short on time, and I, I don't want to let uh, the show end without mention, make, mentioning a couple of things that I think are worth uh, people paying attention to. Um, it, as part of the UN Climate Change Conference website, I was noodling around on it the other day, and, and I really was struck by a section of the uh, site called the One Step Greener Ambassadors. Uh, and they've, what they've done is they've identified a collection of young people who are taking action individually on dealing with climate change in, in ways that I found very inspiring. But more to the point, um, give us an idea of how we as individuals can, can be involved in this. Marshall Shepard just bought an electric vehicle. Good for him. Uh, these ambassadors have a bunch of other ideas. Uh, Sam Burmistoss is going to post a link to that on uh, our social media. I think you'll find it pretty interesting. And then I also want to say, Marshall Shepard, we're not going to get to talk about that episode of Weather Geeks. People can w listen to your podcast and hear how re-engineering city streets, how using electric vehicles and self-driving vehicles all can play a role in reducing carbon emissions. So important in a city a metro area like uh, Atlanta. So I really would encourage people. It's fascinating stuff. Um, Kevin Riley, as we run out of time today, um, I think this is a subject that we both agree, uh, both GPB and the Atlanta Con Journal-Constitution are going to continue to pay a lot of attention to in the weeks, months, and years ahead for that matter. It is certainly one of the great issues of our time. I mean, it truly is. Dr. Kim Cobb, 
Dr. Marshall Shepard, what a great conversation. I would welcome your return to this show as things develop over the months ahead and hope you will come back. I know our listeners would love to hear from you. Kevin Riley, as always, a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you all so much for being with us today. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Yes, wear your mask when you're around people inside. And now go get that flu shot because you've already been vaccinated for COVID. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.